0: Have you read those letters from John? He seems to repeat himself over and over again. Love, truth, love, truth. Is it because he is old and can't remember what he just said or wrote? Or maybe there is something deeper here that I don't get. It would be nice if someone could help me get into the meaning, help me understand the context so that I can apply it in my own life. Hi, my name is Terence, and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review Letters of John by Gary M. Birch. Uh, 280 pages published by Zondervan Academy in October 2011. This is a volume from the NIV application commentary series. And I just want to say I love this series. The unique format just stands out from all the other commentary series. Uh, What it does is it takes a Bible book, or in today's commentary, today's book, it takes all three of John's letters and breaks down the text into chunks of verses expounded in various chapters. So far, nothing new. That's what every commentary does. The difference is that uh, every chapter starts with a scripture passage, which is then followed by three sections. First, original meaning. Second, bridging context. And Three, Contemporary Significance. So every chapter has these three sections. Original Meaning looks at the text and asks, what would this text mean to the original audience? Let's get into the Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, the grammar, the historical, geographical, social, cultural background. Let's understand what it means then. The next section, Bridging Context, makes explicit the transition from the people there and then To the people here and now In those days John was warning Christians Of Gnostic teachers And their Gnostic ways So okay How do we bridge that To today When Gnostic people Don't exist When Gnostic teachings Are not prevalent Or are they not? Um, So uh, the bridging context Helps us move that transition over The final section, Contemporary Significance, takes what we learn from the original meaning and bridging context to bring the passage home. What does this passage mean for our family, work, and church? So that is uh, how the three sections uh, look like. And this is what I tell people read any commentary from this series because it can make you, it does make you, a better Bible reader. You see, there are many quote-unquote good preachers out there They are great with the feels They make you feel whatever you want to feel Excited or convicted or whatever it is They tick all the boxes with the TikTok crowd And that's an awesome sermon But that's not really what the text says And people don't like it when you tell them That the sermon which they enjoyed so much is problematic It's as if you are putting down their children and sometimes they just ignore your comment. They shrug and say, "Hey, to each his own." But that's not that's that's not that's not true, because I'm not commenting on the subjective experience, which I can admit that it is impressive. I am saying that beneath all the boom, 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 or the flash and jazz, the testimonies, dreams, and even visions, underneath all that is a objectively faulty interpretation of the passage even if the passage was even expounded because sometimes passages are just used in the beginning as a jumping point used as a prop to legitimize it as a sermon so that is abhorrent to me so so what I'm saying is that um, it can be very difficult to persuade people that uh, that there is actually an objective way to get into the interpretation to get at the at the meaning of the passage itself without dismissing the supposed application uh, that uh, that uh, arises from those uh, passages. So what we are interested in is to get to the truth of the passage. And it is an objective thing. It's not merely subjective. And knowing the truth is important. And just ask John. The apostle John is the apostle of love. And he was not some hippie singing love, love, love. He was driven by a deep, deep conviction of who he witnessed and who he followed, namely the God-man Christ Jesus. And Gary M. Birch is here to tell us all about it. Birch is the Adjunct Professor of New Testament at Calvin Theological Seminary. Before that, he was a professor at Wheaton College for 25 years. He wrote his dissertation under I. Howard Marshall on the title, the Anointed Community, the Holy Spirit in the Johannine, or Johannine uh, tradition. Since then, he has written a lot on John, including the 965-page NIV application commentary uh, on the Gospel of John. So it's a good thing that Logos did not make that the free book for August, otherwise you won't be getting a review from me today. Instead, today we get a review on his shorter book on the NIV Application Commentary on the Letters of John by Gary M. Birch. Let's move on to the book. The three episodes or letters are named 1st, 2nd and 3rd John. Even though the writer did not sign off on his letters, we we call them uh, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and Birch acknowledges that the identity of the author is contested, but insists that we should take the author to be the apostle john unless we have evidence that says otherwise and he explains a bit more in his introduction and we know that uh, john is known as the apostle of love for good reasons yet the apostle of love was not slow to condemn false teachers in his letters you, if you would read it, and it's very quick to read, you can see how he vigorously warns Christians in the strongest terms of false teachers. In fact, this was how he showed love. But what we want to know is what was the dispute about? And Birch writes, I quote, John says that his opponents hold the following beliefs. They deny the Son. They deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And they deny that Jesus is the Christ. And there are Bible references um, everywhere when he cites these things. And then these statements are coming back. So these statements may be compared with affirmations in the letters that buttress uh, John's own Christology. It is likely that these verses are also connected to the opponent's Christological error. Then he references uh, give us four bullet points with uh, scripture references. Uh, The first bullet point is Jesus is the Christ, Uh, chapter five verse one. Jesus has come in the flesh. Jesus is the Son, the Son of God, and Jesus came by water and blood. From these statements, uh, a composite image of John's opponents begins to emerge. They are no doubt Christians have begun to deviate from the traditionally received understanding of Jesus Christ. They affirm the idea of Christ, but doubt whether Christ became flesh and whether the man Jesus was indeed the incarnation of God. You might be thinking, oh, there's nothing for me to read here. I don't believe any of these uh, false teachings and I don't know anyone who does. But just because the false teachers of John's time have died Nearly two thousand years ago, it does not mean that their teachings have died. The warnings are still valid. We just need someone to build us a bridge, to for us to apply in our own time. Birch does that for us in twelve chapters for First John. So First John, there are twelve chapters, uh, breaking down all the various uh, chap- uh, uh, verses, and there is a chapter each for Second and Third John. And which is no surprise because 2nd and 3rd John, the letters are really short. They are the equivalent of our tweets, I suppose, uh, for today. And uh, before we continue, I just want to just emphasize here that you can read 1st John in one sitting. It's only five chapters long, and after finishing 1st John and maybe 2nd and 3rd John, you can congratulate yourself for finishing three out of the 66 books of the Bible. And that's 4.5% of all the books in the Bible. So you really should do that. It's uh, something you can do in just one sitting. And after reading it, if you're like me, you will be slightly perplexed with 1 John. And it's not that I don't understand what he is saying. It's just that, that it, it's quite repetitious. And sometimes there are these uh, imageries, that he somehow assumes the readers know. You get a sense uh, that this is an important, heartfelt letter, that the stakes are high, but not really sure whether I understand it fully to get the the full nuance behind it. So Birch helps us by dividing the letter into two parts. God is light, uh, that's in 1 John 1 verse 5, and God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. So those are the two parts of the two sections of this uh, letter. And he makes an interesting and compelling connection with the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John, uh, according to Birch, can also be divided into two parts. The first half is on the light that shines in the darkness. So there are verses that the first half would cover that And the second half of the Gospel of John Is on Jesus caring and nurturing those who believe in him So that was interesting And if there is this uh, connection Then uh, then uh, it would sh- again shed light on, who, on the writer In this case, uh, John And how he thinks and what he's trying to say If we see a close association between the Gospel of John And the letters of John Now Once we know how things are organized, how things are laid out, um, I will now attempt to bring out the essence of the book of this commentary by Birch by taking one chapter as an example. What I want is a chapter that is fairly self-contained so that we can understand it without referring to previous or next chapters. And I also hope to find a chapter that proves to you the usefulness of the three sections, the original meaning, bridging context, and contemporary significance, because this is the unique selling point of the book. And other than these um, literary considerations, I aim to offer you a biblical insight, a divine truth that you can take away from today's episode so that you can pray, meditate, worship, and just delight in. Right, so we are not just literature uh, interested in literature, we are also interested in uh, spiritual nourishment, what edification. so after going through the whole book, I've decided to take the chapter on first John, chapter four, verse one to six, okay, so there's a chapter on this. And uh, the chapter begins with the verses printed in full, which is always a nice thing, I, in my opinion, for a commentary to have. So let me read the, the Bible verse, and then I'll go and talk about the three sections after, immediately after that. So John, First John chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false teachers have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, And today, we have the same problem. We have false teachers on the pulpit, people claiming to be prophets and apostles, entering our homes, teaching our children, writing books and signing autographs. And what should we do? How do we test the spirit? Read the Bible. That's the answer. Know Jesus. Pray more. Get myself into a proper Christian community. And I could go on and on. But wait, wait, wait. We have gone ahead of ourselves. Do you see what I just did? As soon as I read the passage, I immediately jumped into my own situation. And I could go on and on about today's problems and how we should solve them and, and so on, but, but that's not the way we should begin to the, the study of the Bible. We should make it relevant, okay? so please don't, don't get confused Yes, we should make it relevant, but not so soon, not so fast And now, just to make the point clear, let's read how Birch does it In the uh, original Meaning section He explains the problem of those who call themselves prophets But were actually frauds Birch writes, "Okay, let me quote It is important to pause and gain some appreciation for this problem in the early church. House churches were isolated in cities throughout the Roman Empire. In the early years, there were few formal creeds, such as the later Creed of Nicaea, to give doctrinal guidance. Nor were the scriptures available as we have them today. No one owned a New Testament and at best, the early Christians only had random collections of letters from the apostles and collections of stories about Jesus. Therefore, oral communication was essential. Churches relied on emissaries from their leaders who relayed information from other communities and taught. Paul sent out Timothy and Silas in this capacity, and John sent out elders as his spokespersons. But problems came when prophets or teachers arrived claiming an authority that was not rightfully theirs. Paul had to address the problem of unauthorized teachers in Galatia and Thessalonica. Because some some churches received false letters, he even decided to sign his correspondence with recognizable markings. This phenomenon meant that churches could fall prey to unscrupulous, itinerant, Prophets and teachers, and John's churches were no exception. Consequently, Christians had to be ready to assess the message they heard and the spirit that inspired it. So it's not about you, yet, it's about them. You need to travel back in time and see the problems they faced. They did not have Google, not even a Bible and there were no seminary-trained pastors with 2,000 years of scholarship to back them up. In that situation, how can anyone know what is true? Without the Bible, with these prophets claiming divine inspiration, how can the early Christians test the teaching? And, And once we truly understand the problem that they face, then we can truly appreciate the solution that John tells us, which is, now, again, you read the passage and you notice that as Birch uh, gives us in his uh, original meaning section, there are two tests. The first test is what do they say about Jesus? The second test is how does the church receive their teachings? And Birch summarizes at the end of the section, I quote, If the incarnate Christ has been theologically removed, if Christology is not at the center of, in the center of what someone says, we are right to be suspicious. In addition, if the community we have always trusted, if the if the church, as the historic custodian of the truth, custodian of the truth, refuses this prophecy, we should be warned. Moreover, if it finds a ready reception in the world, we should flee because it may be a message that has originated with the evil spirit that dominates that world. End quote. All right, so now that I know what it means, let's uh, apply it in, in, uh, in my life. Not so fast. <laughs> before we leave the past, uh, before we leave John and his church and rush to me and my church, there is an intermediate state uh, or at least an intermediate section called bridging context. In John's time, we have truth and falsehood. In our time, we have your truth my truth and many truths as many truths as we need and almost nothing is false in john's time the false teachers taught that jesus was not truly human in our time false teachers can affirm what john said but they can also say that uh, jesus was not the only man who can be divine so the christology is uh, is is different it's not exactly what uh, john was refuting in John's time, he appealed to people who were predisposed, okay, people who who truly wanted to pursue truth. In our time, now let me read what Birch writes here. I quote: Among the students I teach, I find that most of them are eager to tell how they feel about a particular question, but few of them are capable of giving a coherent, objective, carefully reasoned argument for or against it. End quote. So the bridging context gives us space to consider what the text says and what it does not say. The last thing we want is to wrongly apply the lesson and do something or believe something that is contrary to whatever John is saying. A spectacular example that Birch points out later in the book is how there was this guy called uh, Oral Roberts and his healing ministry began with a misreading, okay, with a misinterpretation of uh, Third John uh, verse 2. So anyway, I won't go into that. But that's just an example of wrong interpretation leading to uh, huge consequences down the line. So what we say here is that it is only after we know the original meaning and the bridging context that we can Move and only move to the contemporary significance. Okay, about the significance to to me now. And for this uh, test, the Spirit's passage for this uh, passage, Birch outlines four application points. Okay, so the first one is the church is called to be the custodian of the truth. He asks here, how do I cultivate a discerning spirit without becoming cynical? The second application point is. On the centrality of Christology And Birch wonders if John's concern Is alive in our church today Third is How do we unmask false teachers? And here uh, he writes And I want to quote here um, John has at least two concerns A. False teachers should not have access to the church As a platform for their teachings And B. People should not be deceived By what they hear in the church This means, at least, that the church should be a spiritual refuge where experimental teachings or controversial points of view are checked. Practically speaking, and this is the key word guys, Practically speaking, that is the contemporary significance over here Practically speaking, when I, send, I quote, when I send my daughters to Sunday school I deserve the assurance that the teacher in the class is not there Simply because she is the only one who volunteered The church must guarantee that those who teach Are theologically and spiritually qualified to do so End quote So again, fantastic uh, contemporary uh, significance Fantastic application of the passage that was just um, expounded And uh, and there's a fourth, okay That was the third application point The fourth application point And he poses this question is Where or who are these spirits today? Remember there was a spirit of truth and a spirit of falsehood And Birch describes two types of uh, falsehood spirits One is spirits as in territorial spirits Demons bondage, exorcism, that sort of thing. And uh, he, he refers to uh, Peter Wagner's book, Territorial Spirit, Insights on Strategic Level Spiritual Warfare from 19 Christian Leaders. So he refers to this book in this commentary of his, in, of, the, of Birch. And uh, the other type of spirit is the spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age is such that we live now in a world that has no use for truth. God becoming human is not simply rejected, but now it is incomprehensible. And here he quotes, refers to David Wells' No Place for Truth. So uh, these are the four application points. Um, There are many application points that one can, can draw from a verse, as many as there are Christians in a church. Because each one, everyone should be able to apply the verse in their own ways So what Burj does here are just uh, helpful samples Which will be different for everyone And uh, for different occasions And for different walks of life, right? So it's just nice to see how uh, whatever passage that you read And there are some very strange passages that you may be wondering what could I get from here? What could I uh, take away from here? And, uh, it's, and this is the value of this particular application commentary series. No matter what passage you're looking at, there's some guy who's telling you, you can get something from here, all right? So, and so this is just one chapter uh, from one passage from, uh, from the letters of John. And I hope that this gives you a good idea of how this commentary series can train you, train you to separate interpretation from application. And how this particular book, uh, the Letters of John Commentary, in particular, can train you to separate truth from falsehoods. Okay, so that's one of the themes of uh, John's letters that uh, Birch is able to bring out uh, very well. Now, having explained what the book is about, and uh, hopefully uh, giving you sufficient um, encouragement or reasons to go and get uh, uh, this book, uh, let me share some reflections, okay, some personal reflections. When I finished the book, I I realized that my take on this book was uh, somehow, surprisingly, influenced by the the previous book that I read. In the last episode, I read um, Peter Wagner's commentary on the Book of Acts. And to my surprise, I did not expect to read about Peter Wagner in uh, Burgess' commentary and to mention him in a positive light. So, and uh, just... To be clear, I don't know what is Birch's take on the controversial figure of Peter Wagner and his legacy. Uh, I didn't do a deep dive into that. But uh, I can just tell you uh, what I read from the two books and how it, it, it's so different. All right. So regardless of how Birch uh, perceives or receives uh, Wagner, I can tell you that uh, the two write in very, very different approaches. So, just me speaking on Wagner's commentary on Acts, all right? So, just narrowly focus on that. Wagner exalts in creative interpretation, which leads to questionable application. And those questionable application comes at the reader with the force of a biblical rule. And if you can't distinguish between interpretation and application the reader could take as gospel truth what is merely a speculation. Or on the other extreme, because we are so worried about this, uh, so cautious, um, all the guesswork, the speculation that Wagner gives, the reader cannot um, receive and learn from the mini- missions and power ministry focus that, that Wagner offers. Okay, So there are good things to get from Wagner's book. It's just that if you're not able to sift um, then it's either you take in all Which is a danger Or you throw all Which is a waste Okay, So that is the problem And you can overcome these problems If you are trained To get to the original meaning The bridging context And contemporary significance Of any passage And um, this is where In contrast to Wagner Birch is uh, more careful and I appreciate his prudence because it is a check on me on, as I read the Bible so that I don't make the Bible say what I want it to say or what I don't want it to say. And there are many, uh, there are many parts, which I don't want to elaborate, where Bert says, that, all right, some authors say this, some scholars say that, but because there is not enough evidence in the Bible to, to go there, so uh, this is what we know for sure. So, I, I always appreciate when authors do that. They restrain their, their need to, to be strong or firm on a particular position when there is not enough grounds to do so, Okay, despite whatever they really, really, really want to believe. So, I really appreciate that. And uh, another thing that popped up to me, uh, so one last thing about between Wagner and Birch, is on the matter of content. Okay, so something that Wagner so desperately needs to believe. And uh, the main thesis okay, of Wagner's book is that the best and perhaps the only way to evangelize is to go through the indigenous community. And uh, according to Wagner, when the Hellenistic Jews complained to the Hebrew Jews, there was an amicable church split. And uh, so his interpretation here. Uh, is, uh, is there is this insistence on a culture ministering to its own and this insistence, this interpretive lens dominates how he interprets every event in Acts it's always, always an indigenous uh, community and it is the best way to evangelize so if Coming out of Wagner's book and coming in to Birch, I I read this passage from Birch. He did not write this in response to Wagner. He was merely commenting on Third John, the third letter of John. But I thought that it was funny how it was a strong counterpoint to Wagner. Birch writes, I quote, The names given in Third John, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius are all Greek. This fact suggests a cultural context far removed from Judea and Galilee. Thus, when a traditional source of authority steps forward, an apostolic elder, some chafed at the thought of submission. Our religion is working for us. It feels right. Why should we conform to a foreigner, someone who represents traditions and people we don't even know? End quote. First, Normally, I would not have noticed the Greek names because they are all Greek to me. But because Birch brings it up, so I noticed it. And it does have a cultural uh, significance. Second, I would never have uh, thought about this cultural aspect if not because of uh, coming out of Wagner's book, which is all about culture. And Berger's point over here is that truth, proper theology, overrides cultural um, uh, centricity, or whatever you want to call it. Okay, So truth is more important than culture. And this is something that I, I, I saw, which I would not normally have noticed. If not, because I saw these two books uh, side by side. And between the two books, I would say that uh, Berger's commentary wins even though both are not in the competition, but Birch wins anyways. Now, in conclusion, the NIV application commentary series is a standout series. And uh, even though I have not read every one of those books, I just love the fact that it's divided into three sections. And I truly think that you cannot go wrong reading these commentaries, even if the thinking is, or whatever that is written, because I, I, like I said, I did not read every commentary. Even if, uh, what they write is wrong, at least you know in which section they are wrong. So it's very useful in that sense to be able to separate out, allow you to think about things um, uh, in separate f- and not m- merge and s- make into a jumble of stuff. All right, So you don't mix up your application with your uh, meaning of the, of the text. Uh, I, I do want to say that one volume from the NIV application commentaries that I recommend is the commentary on Acts by Ajif Fernando. If you have to get a commentary on X, get Fernando's, not Wagner's. And uh, I strongly believe that every student of the Bible, which means every Christian, should learn how to separate interpretation from application. Don't rush. Just don't rush to application. Put more effort in understanding what the text says. Because truth matters. Just ask John. God is light. God is love and truth matters. This is a reading and reader's review of Letters of John by Gary Birch, 280 pages published by Zondervan Academic in October 2011. This is a volume from the NIV application commentary series. Uh, This commentary was available for free in August, but if you miss out on that deal, then don't miss out on September's free book. I am reading... The Doctrines of Grace uh, currently the free book for September which is uh, The Doctrines of Grace Rediscovering the Evangelical Gospel by James Montgomery Boyce and Philip Graham Riken. this book was uh, uh, Jim Boyce's uh, last writing project and so so far I'm just reading halfway through it is a very engaging read and I have I look forward to sharing more to you about this book so thanks for listening bye bye